This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Dulcinea by Toad the Wet Sprocket with special guest Glenn Phillips and Dean Dinning. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 140, season, th- season three. Almost fumbled what season we're on. Of course, it's season three. And we are tackling some Toad on this one. It's Toad the Wet Sprocket, Jay. Uh, did you ever imagine that we'd be tackling Toad the Wet Sprocket when we started this endeavor? <laughs> I imagine we may review it. I didn't know that we would necessarily tackle it, tackle a Toad. <laughs> didn't envision that. Well, we went further. Actually, and... I think I probably considered this man as being too popular for, the, for us to have ever covered them. And that's, you could make an argument, you could. I would argue that they were, although a popular band, they were not a, you know, they had basically one single that did well, which was All I Want. And, uh, really? It got, yeah, it got into the, it got a top 15 on the Billboard 100. Other than that, they were really more of a, of a college radio, uh, sort of a, you know, more with that crowd. And huh. uh, they had. I, I knew like, I knew like four of the songs. Well, they, it was helped by the fact that they had a song on the Friends soundtrack when that TV show broke, and it wasn't even a song that was on an album. It was called Good Intentions, and they just put it on the soundtrack for that particular show, and then they ended up putting it on their like a compilation album of, uh, you know, unreleased B sides and 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 compilation songs, and that ended up being a big hit for them. Uh, and they had a bunch of other singles, but none of them were as popular as All I Want. And uh, to help us, you know, sort of explain all this, uh, I talked to Glenn Phillips and De- uh, Dean Dinning of the band. Glenn, the lead singer and guitar player, primary uh, songwriter, and Dean, the bass player and backup vocalist, uh, doing a lot of harmonies. And um, one of the things that I found interesting, Jay... That we're going to talk mm-hmm. that they talked to me about is how they were really an independent band when they started out, and they maintained that through the majority of their career, um, up until even now with the Kickstarter uh, campaign for their latest album. They actually released their first album when they were at high school in '88 uh, on their own record label. They pressed up cassettes and or dubbed cassettes, and that got the attention of Columbia Records. Columbia re-released the album. Uh, the year uh, next next year, and then in order to avoid uh, record label interference, they declined in advance on their on their second record, and paid for the recording themselves with the understanding that the record label would make no changes to it. Wow. So th- they took a pretty bold stance with their record label, sure. and they pretty and they they avoided taking money up front up until their last record. Uh, which the, they talk about why that was sort of a, a necessary thing and why that turned out to be also um, not a great decision. And that was the last hmm. <laughs> the last album for 16 years from the band. Uh, so, and then this is, you know, the band came back around to releasing their own record and they're actually putting out on the same label that they released their first record on, Abe's Records. So, and they talk all about this. They talk about songwriting. They talk about touring the differences between all those things between 1990 and now and all that sort of thing, all that sort of stuff uh, in the interview. So I want to get your thoughts, though, Jay. 
We're, we cover the album Delicinea or Delicinea. How familiar were you with Toad other than the singles? Had you, you know, gotten into any of the albums, or were you primarily singles? You know, heard it on the radio, that sort of thing. Uh, singles, heard it on the radio, kind of thing. Okay. Which I knew, you know, I, I knew, you know, probably when I look at, you know, sort of their most popular songs on Spotify. You know, I've heard "All I Want" a lot. I've heard "Walk on the Ocean" a ton. I thought that was the biggest single. That was the one I always thought of. Nope. Uh, Something's always wrong, and then fall down. Uh, I was very familiar with mm-hmm. from radio. All right. Well, why don't so, we go to the interview with the uh, with the band and let them explain and, all that stuff. for joining us um on the podcast guys i'm with glenn phillips and dean dinning did i pronounce that correct dean correct okay um from toe the wet sprocket of course and yeah thanks for uh joining us from your locales out in california and um talking to the podcast like i mentioned uh in the ramp up when we were starting out uh some people have said hey you guys have been doing this for two and a half years and you haven't talked to anybody from Toad the Wet Sprocket or done a Toad the Wet Sprocket album. That seems kind of stupid because this is probably one of the more interesting and important bands from the 90s. So uh, we finally got our act together and having you guys on. So you guys just wrapped up some tour dates um, recently and you're going to have a new record coming out. So can you talk a little bit about what was the what was the reason for um, getting back into the studio after, gosh, I mean, it's been... I don't want to say how long. It's been a long 16 time. Years, Sixteen years. Actually. That just makes me feel old when I say that. <laughs> we're all we're we're maturing like fine wine. Because I was still working college radio at the time, so uh, that that was a long time ago. So yeah, what was the what was the reason for you guys to start working on new material? Dean, you want to take it, Glenn, or whichever? Uh, it seemed it's it just seemed like time. I mean, uh, you know, we we got back and and played here and there and. You know, usually, I mean, we broke up, I think, with good reason. We needed uh, we needed to have a life outside of Toad for a while. And we would come back and various things would kind of implode. And a few years ago, we got back together and nothing imploded. And we got back the next year just to see if it was still the case and nothing imploded again. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, once it started feeling like, okay, everybody, like we all want to be here. We all actually like doing this. We've all got over what we needed to get over. And uh, we did a, a greatest hits re-record basically so that we could own it instead of Sony. Our publishing had come back to us and we figured you know, if somebody wanted to use a song in a TV show or something, we could make it so that it was one phone call to us instead of lots of phone calls to Sony. Uh, and so we did that, and that went well. And then we were like, well, maybe let's start writing. So we, we really took our time. We didn't want it to snowball or get out of control. But um, we just, it was the next natural step, I guess. And you guys went the Kickstarter route, which is a, uh sort of in fashion now to do the crowdsourcing, whether it's Kickstarter or one of the other services that are out there. Was there a reason why you guys went that way? Was it more attractive than, say, 
going through the the label system or trying to find an indie to um, For, put the financing yeah. together? I mean, the kind of label deal we could get right now, um, chances are. Uh, I mean, because the 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 business is in disarray, and unless you are, you know, a really um, you know, proven pop entity that they think they can knock out of the park. I mean, we're we're kind of a middle class band, right? We have an audience. We're very lucky to have that. But uh, as far as their investment goes, um, you know, these days you get a little bit of money to record the record, a little commitment to work it. You wouldn't own it at the end of the day, and then you'd have probably a two month window in which to be a success or not once it was out and. Uh, with Kickstarter, we can have you know a small group of fans funded this thing. We own the record lock, stock, and barrel with no debt. We have uh, our biggest fans are going to be serviced first. They already have the album. You know they got it months before anyone else will hear it. Uh, so we get to kind of super serve those people. I'm using super a lot, but we get to serve those people really well, make them really stoked, and let them support us. And we walk out of this owning our record completely and with the ability to start it out, like working it on our own. And if later a label wants to come in, we'll already have a story to tell and we'll get to keep the record. So uh, rather than, you know, normally if we were to get the deal we could get right now, we would be releasing the record, you know, $100,000 in debt with knowing that another $100,000 would be sold and we would have very little control over how to actually get it out in the world. So this is a lot better. <laughs> right. And now, are you concerned at all about the fulfillment stage of it? Because that's where I've read a lot of bands and, and artists in general can, can kind of get into trouble because they don't necessarily, they put all the you know various fulfillments for if you, if you hit this level, you do this. For example, you guys have, one of them is uh, there was an option for, to have handwritten lyrics for a song, you choose a song, and then there would be the the lyrics would be handwritten. I think forty three people chose that. Yeah, um, I have to do all of them. That's so that's forty three sheets of paper. That's that's a that could be carpal tunnel. I mean, mm -hmm. that's that's a lot of writing. Are you, do you have an auto pen or something that you can? <laughs> I wish that would be awesome. Uh, no, I'm just gonna do them all, and we're gonna print up some really nice. Uh, you know, we have a little embosser we got, so we're going to emboss the paper and we're going to print up some uh, stationery with kind of, you know, a very light version of the album. I mean, we're trying to make it, because obviously people are paying a lot for a piece of paper, uh, but we want it to look cool, too. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it, you know, it should be noted, Amanda Palmer's million-dollar Kickstarter thing, uh, she spent money on at the end of the day. She didn't take any of that home. Uh, and we're probably going to spend you know how probably it'll be near half of what we raised uh fulfilling this orders i mean it might be less but we're also going to not cut corners because there's nothing crappier than thinking that you've supported your favorite band and then you know not actually getting what they said they'd get you know and then feeling cheaped out on right right so. like like even for the vinyl we just decided that we were going to go with making it a double LP so the sound quality would be better because we were having trouble fitting all 11 songs onto a single LP so you know little little things add up uh, all over the place but we're still trying to keep it in check then there's well, colored vinyl we were talking colored vinyl but colored vinyl is slightly less good for audio fidelity so do we do a true cool limited edition colored vinyl because we get the additional, we got by having two discs, we get the additional quality from that that maybe we could. 
it's hard to say. <laughs> now, and you guys had a goal of I think it was fifty thousand dollars, and then you ended up raising two hundred and sixty-four thousand mm-hmm. at the end. Is there any thought of maybe doing a uh, an album per fifty thousand and doing making this like a five album uh, massive release? Or is that, uh, or is that too ambitious? What do you mean? <laughs> No, yeah. I'm just. I'm just. Uh, we we'd have to write and record all of that. We've already recorded the album, and I mean, gotcha. a part of Kickstarter. Kickstarter is project oriented, but that doesn't mean now we go into the studio. And, and I mean, it's funny. And when you translate it to people, like we, uh, you know, people are thinking, "Well, okay, the campaign's over. Where's my stuff?" And it's like, wait, the whole thing about this is you haven't made your stuff yet because we didn't know what the orders were until the last day. Right. Exactly. And it's special stuff only for you, so we're not going to print extras because we can't do anything with them. <laughs> so, like, yeah. um, you know, uh, so we need to do a better job probably of, uh, you know, letting people know, you know, we're doing it as fast as we can. I mean, the, the artwork has actually ended up, uh, the graphic design has ended up being the, the you know, the, the weakest link as far as the time schedule goes and getting this stuff out. So we're in a crazy hurry to fulfill these orders but we also want them to be really high quality we want to make yeah. happy with it we have an amazing looking package going on and some some really great art which um which is going to make the whole thing really special and really this isn't that far off from going back to the beginning of your career sort of diying it and and you know mm-hmm. re- make doing your own recording and putting together your own artwork and um in some ways do you feel like you're better prepared for this because you started uh, on that end, as opposed to other bands, which maybe you know, in, in the '90s, there's plenty of stories of bands, you know, forming, and then six months later, they're signed to A&M Records, and you know, uh, cutting their first album after uh, barely even getting to know each other. Whereas you guys had built, you know, I think I read that you started in high school as as a band uh, and known each other for a long time, and then it was, I think it was. 89 was that when the or 88 when you first released um bread and circus and then it was re-released on columbia the, the following year is that correct Do I have yeah that, that was timer? that was pretty much what happened i mean we okay. uh we made it ourselves and sold it in record stores on cassette for five dollars a copy and that's something that i i can't imagine a lot of bands today even understand because there's no a lot of them don't have a physical product when they're doing it themselves they're just recording an mp3 to the garage band and or to or to uh pro tools and then putting it up on soundcloud and that's it where there's no like getting it pressed or dubbing cassettes or or doing any of that sort of legwork Uh, right although the difference with a band now is i mean it it the, the the ability to make the record yourself and get it get it out there I mean, you know, anybody can make a record and get a Bandcamp account and stick it up there for nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you own a computer, you have GarageBand, you can make that happen. So this is actually a huge DIY time. I mean, you know, and Seven Inches are back. There's all, you know, the, the, the people are into physical media again. Um, I hear right. even cassettes coming back. Probably. I don't know what you play it on. But... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's yeah, going to be, you know, there's record store day, there's going to be cassette day. There's going to be cassette day, but there's, uh, so it's a big DIY time right now. And I mean, you look at stuff that does, uh, you know, there, there are a ton of bands now that, and even if they end up on a major label, they end up on a major label because they started themselves. They started doing their own thing, whether it was through a tiny indie or whether it was 100% themselves. 
Um, you know, it's kind of what it takes these days uh, is, you know, if you're not doing the big corporate pop, if you're doing the big corporate pop thing, then then having your team and having it be kind of, well, corporate is part of it, right? You, you know, you're not just a kid and, hey, I wrote a song. It's like you have a production team and a manager and everybody's working it hard. Uh, now indie bands kind of have to be a little of the same. They have, you have to start your touring on your own. You have to put your albums out on your own. You have to create your own story. And by the time the majors get involved, usually these bands are already doing fairly well on their own. I mean, they've already created a story. So um, DIY is very much alive and well. Yeah, you know, it's almost... Making, I'm sorry. In terms no, of ahead, making dude. the record, um, you know, back in the day, um, we traded uh, getting a big advance up front for having, you know, complete con creative control when we made our records. So in that way, nothing has really changed. It would be, it would kind of, you know, be a bummer now to have got, learned everything we've learned and get to this point and have signed some kind of a deal where all of a sudden we have people telling us, you know, what our sound is, which, which songs to cut, things like this. So in a way, this has kind of given us a measure of consistency that we've always had. You know, we, we always made our own records and handed them into the company um, after they were done, pretty much. So this one's really no different, except and, we're the company. And to say that you got, I mean, we, I started out by saying it's been like 16 years since releases, but you guys, even though there was the breakup, you played shows consistently throughout the 2000s, whether it was a one-off here or there or a couple of tour dates. Um, it wasn't like some bands which step out of the eye, public eye and then are just completely gone. You guys still stayed a little bit present especially for your core fans so that when the kickstarter campaign came around it wasn't as if you were you know cut, dusting off the cobwebs and hoping people were going to show up you still had some connection with people out there based on the touring right well back in the day we had a seventy thousand name mailing list um that we kept so that because we never thought we'd get played on the radio and we wanted to be able to let fans know that we were playing near them um, without them having to find out about it through, you know, traditional media. So, um, you know, I think what we did back then, making a connection with our fans, I mean, we would send out Christmas cards, we would send out cassettes of unreleased songs, all kinds of things like this. You know, we took it one step further, and I think there's there are... There, we ended up having a lot of people who not just enjoyed the music, but they felt like they had a real connection to the band. So I think that in a lot of ways, and also combined with um, Glenn's continued touring um, as a solo artist, really kind of kept the band alive during the downtime. I would say one other thing is, is we let, uh, we, we've been having to educate new management about this, is we had, you know, we always allowed uh, fans to tape shows, so we had a ton of stuff on archive.org, we, you know, there was... You know, when we went away, there were a lot of shows for people to find and look through. So I also think, get, you know, giving more to people paid off in the long run. It gave gave people a lot more to listen to. I want to go back a little bit to uh, you'd mentioned um, having control over your releases. So for the second album, Pale, um, I had read that basically you guys you paid to record that so that you could turn it in and they the record label did not alter it in any way is that true we actually, or is it... we, yeah we actually delivered it to the record label on vinyl what really yeah it was cool did they well this is 90 so i guess vinyl the cds had not completely taken over 
uh, or 89, I guess, because the album came out in January of, of 90. I think it was so. just kind of a kind of a smart aleck thing to do, you know, to say here's the record and have it actually be a physical record. You know, it just it just what it says about it is this thing isn't going to get changed. This is it. Did you guys feel like you had like that sort of I don't know cachet with the label where you could kind of do <laughs> that sort of thing and they they'd be like oh that's funny or did you actually like you know uh, tick some people off with that sort of a gesture? Yeah, I think it was more we didn't have a lot to lose. I, I mean, one of the, the the weird things with Toad is we you know it was our first band. We were expecting the summer we got signed. What we were really expecting to do was um, break up at the end of that summer. Uh, you know, I was. We were all going to go to different schools. We kind of had our plan for what our next year would be, and you know, we'd made these two records on our own, but we were ready to move on. And then all of a sudden, uh, this guy at ASCAP, right, the Performance Rights Association. Mm-hmm. He was. He started dubbing off copies of our record and sending it to A and R people. And I mean, we had a manager, but the manager hadn't sent anything. I mean, so we started getting calls from record labels, and we hadn't even sent anything out. And the next thing we knew, we're having meetings, and it looks like, oh, I guess we'll put off school for the next year because somebody's going to put out our album. That's weird. So we just had this idea, like. You know, rather than having that thing that most musicians do where it's like, I'll do anything to put this out. We were like, oh, um, you want to do that? Yeah, sure. Well, you put it out as it is because we really don't want to mess around. You know, it's like if we're going to bother doing this, we may as well do it our way. (laughs) And so, um, you know, we had nothing to lose because we weren't invested in it in the way I think a lot of bands would have been. That paid off for them because then... In 91, after you guys put out uh, your third album, Fear, All I Want became a top 20 uh, Billboard hit for the mm-hmm. on the Billboard Hot 100. Did that sort of, did that change things for you guys as a band in terms of, not just radio play, obviously, but in terms of the where you could get booked and um, what sort of tours you could get on and the backstage amenities, where you're getting the, the brown M&Ms and... <laughs> That sort of thing, or like, what does that do to a band to have a top twenty hit when you guys are, you know, like you said, like we were ready to break up a year ago, and now you're all over radio. It took the record company three tries with singles before "All I Want" became a hit. No one expected that song to become a hit. There were even some of us that wanted to leave it off the the Fear album entirely. Um, so it was at that point, um, the label was just trying different things and hoping that something would stick. So we were all just surprised, um, when it took off and, and, and we thought, well, you know, it can't, it can't get any higher. It can't go any farther. And then it just kept going and going and going and became like a signature song. So it was, it was, it was quite a surprise. And I mean, I guess, you know, you, you end up doing things like, you know, going on the Letterman show and, and, you know, meeting Richard Simmons in the hallway and, you know, (laughs) your life, your life becomes a little bit strange, but you know, it's, it's, um, it's fun. It doesn't necessarily feel like reality. Uh, It's nice to dip your toe into. Mm -hmm. It was also weird because we were, we wanted to think we were more of an indie band. We came out of a college music world. That was what we liked. And we were, it wasn't really cool to be on a major label at the time. And, and so 
there, you know, we we had a really odd reaction to it. I, I don't think I enjoyed it. I think I, I would be more capable now of thinking, hey, this is wonderful. We're doing really well. But it, I, I, at the time, I, I was kind of too cool for school. I was like, you know, yeah, we're getting played on the radio, but radio sucks. Ah, <laughs> uh, <so. laughs> uh, youth. Yes. Ah, uh, youth. I've noticed, though, that currently bands don't have that anymore. The 90s were really weird that way. I think it was this early generation of seeing music that, you know, that people thought was really outside of that pop world became mainstream. And I think it was really hard for people to see these bands that everybody thought were their own little secret all of a sudden become phenomenons, right? You know, R.E.M., U2, all these bands, they started as, you know, as these little things off to the side. And uh, it was not, I don't know, not the world we thought we would find ourselves in. And radio was changing dramatically, like we were getting played on Top 40. And, you know, uh, it was it was an odd era. Um, so, I mean, there were a lot of bands that, you know, wouldn't play their single live because radio sucks and that's not what they're about. Uh, it was just, the 90s were odd that way. Yeah, there's definitely a counterintuitive attitude with a lot of the bands for they wanted to be musicians, but they wanted to do as little as possible to work positively in in, in sense of what their career needed. But I think because they wanted to be they wanted to be musicians, and there was this idea. Right. I mean, of the music being this kind of holy, personal, gritty visceral thing and the music business being essentially evil which is not entirely wrong and so um but you know you have to get involved in the music business i mean that's the weird thing with our whole creative control thing and all of that that when it got weird was on our last album where we finally realized that uh you know royalties were a myth and we're like you know we've we've made them a lot of money uh, maybe we should get a big advance this time. And so we got a big advance, and then we expected we could still keep our creative control. And we had it on paper, but uh, for all intents and purposes, you know, we lost it. And they got uh, much more down our throats about what they wanted out of us. And, uh, you know, that was when we started having arguments with the company, and nothing we did was good enough. And, you know, then they, you know, they didn't quite bury the record, but they basically they made their money back and then they turned off all promo immediately after to kind of make a point. Uh, but, you know, up and when we were, I don't know. I, I, and the thing is, if we took the money, we should have known we should have played the game. The reason we were allowed to grow the way we did is because we didn't take money. Um, we were a great profit center for them and we made a good living off live and publishing and other stuff. So it worked you know, it worked for everybody, uh, really. Uh, but you, I don't know. We were naive. Everybody is. <laughs> and you're talking about the, the fifth album, Coil, that came out in 97, right? Yeah. And it seems like end of 96, beginning of 97, we've had this discussion on previous podcasts, is like the turning point for the 90s when record labels, that's when the merger started. That's when... Britney Spears, not Britney Spears, I'm sorry, the, the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC yeah. sort of come on the scene, and then like Limp Bizkit and Korn, so you're starting to lose 
alternative rock radio and it's turning into more of like a hard rock radio and the, the radio stations getting confused because how do you play toad the wet sprocket and then transition into olympus olympus song like that mm-hmm. doesn't work so a lot of the bands that for the first five six seven years of the 90s were staples all of a sudden are butted up against this very like macho test- testosterone driven hard rock or this teen pop that mm-hmm. seems to be completely it w- thought everybody thought was dead and then it just sort of makes this comeback teen um, pop at the end of the forever. 90s it's true <laughs> uh as miley silas just miley cyrus just showed us at the vmas which uh yeah. is, now is now that that reference is going to be old because this is coming out in september so yeah. i'm uh, sticking my tongue out to remind everybody yes uh and it's funny not to derail the conversation but in watching that like i didn't watch it live i just saw it on the net i was thinking this looks a lot like britney spears when she did her like Mm -hmm. i'm sexy and dangerous vma performance 10 years ago like almost choreographed the same way and this how is this in the least least shocking like no it's i i think it's it's kind of pretend shocking it is the most expected thing she could possibly have done yeah like i remember being genuinely scared of alice cooper like thinking that he (laughs) like being 10 years old and seeing kids had duped videos in the 80s and you're like oh my god what does he do is he is he gonna what's that on stage like and and shuddering and like oh we gotta turn this off this is evil and it's like now it's like how can you be shocked by anything I, i i in the same way that uh South Park did the whole Simpsons did it episode. I feel like it's like Madonna did it. Like there's no, I don't know how as, as a female teen performer, like how are you going to do anything that's particularly shocking that Madonna hasn't already done? I yeah, mean, she took nothing, on the Catholic there's church. There's nothing you could do legally really. Right. On, on television. <laughs> anyway, we got a little derailed there, but um, I wanted, I want to go back for a sec because we like to frame these episodes around particular albums. And the one that I picked is uh, from May of 94. It's your fourth release, uh, Dulcinea. And I picked it because, to me, it's the album that there's an interesting combination of what you guys did before, but then stretching into some new territory. Some of the lyrics that I find really interesting are starting with the first track, Fly From Heaven. Uh, It's a sort of a... First, not to say first person, but there's it's it's sort of a story song or that's not a story song. Maybe I should let you, should let explain, you it, explain it, Glenn. Uh, it's from the perspective, from the perspective of, a of a character. Is that correct? Or a, or yeah. a person? Well, it's it's uh, supposed to. I think it, I was thinking of James. I, I've been reading a lot of uh, Eileen Pagel's books and kind of you know books on Gnosticism, early Christianity. Was intrigued by it. And I'm a non, I'm not a Christian, but I've, uh, you know, uh, so I've always been interested in it as story mythology, you know, and, and I've used a lot of the language of it because it's kind of the language of our culture. Um, so it, that song was, you know, more about how would it feel to, to be somebody, you know, looking at this person who you thought was actually, you know, a really maybe an important thinker somebody who is really challenging the status quo, kind of calling everybody to show up and then seeing people come in and make a religion out of it and, and turn this person into somebody you didn't think he was. So, uh, 
it, it was a, about that transition. Like, what would it be like to have been close to Jesus and then kind of watch Paul come in and make Paul's religion? Um, <laughs> so now, Dean, when I don't, I don't know how you guys work in terms of a band, but when you read these lyrics of uh, of Glenn's for the song, were you sort of like, "Huh, this is a little bit headier than." What a norm, what an average band is doing in 1993 or 1994. I don't think Alice in Chains or or um, Stone Temple Pilots were writing songs about um, Jesus' relationship with Paul and and James. So, I, was there any discussion within the band of like about, hey, this is pretty heady stuff, or were you guys just like, yeah, let's push it and see where this goes? You know what? Um, there wasn't any discussion about it. I mean, I I think. Uh... Paul is making me nervous is one of certainly one of the more unique opening lines on a record that I've <laughs> ever heard. Paul is making me nervous. Paul is making me scared. Welcome to this room. He swaggers like he's God's own messenger. Some people, you know, it. Some people, uh, you know, it, it. It made them, you know, question right off the bat. You know, like what it, you know, and it draws you in like that. There was there was no discussion about whether it was too heavy. We all liked that kind of stuff. You know, we were into you know U two and and stuff like that. You know, and it was like that was we 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 liked um, we liked going into those areas. So um, I don't I don't think there was any resistance there. And the label was didn't. A great song. The label didn't say, "Hey, uh, is this a Christian rock song, or is, is something you know, going on?" No here? one said anything. In fact, um, most of a lot uh, people who have thought that it may have uh, been a Christian uh, uh, song, you know, I, I think that they are mostly coming from that from from that angle, and they are they're Christians themselves, and they they either I, some people have had a problem with it, um, uh, but. You know, for the most part, um, people just love the song. We we still get requests for it every night. Yeah, and it's strange. I mean, I've met you know throughout writing a, a lot. I write a lot of songs. I'm interested in spiritual language and religious language and and those subjects. And I've had people uh, angrily stop listening to me because they found out I wasn't Christian. And I've had other people stop listening to me because they heard songs and thought I was. And uh, so, I mean, you know, people hear what they're going to hear and uh, it does what it does to them. But I mean, the, the very first song on our very first album was about a funeral. Uh, so I, I just I, the, the lyrics have never been really like, girl, I want to get with you. So it's just <laughs> not what we do. That's good. You should write that down. 
I want to get Witcher. <laughs> Witcher. Yeah. <laughs> Next album. There you go. Uh, another song I wanted to uh, touch on is one of the singles, which is uh, Something's Always Wrong. And it's more for the uh, the songwriting aspect of it in that uh, that song reminds me a lot, and you can you know dispel the, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but when it gets to the chorus especially, I hear a lot of sort of mid-period The Police. Um, it has this like... I don't, it's almost like I could feel it going, almost going to go into a, like that police sort of beat of of sort of touching on um, that, not a reggae beat, but something close to that. But I, I was just curious about your influences um, in songwriting and in specifically in in writing melody, uh, because that's a lot of that's one of the things that has come up a lot on this podcast when talking with people is what comes first, the melody or the lyrics, and it's sort of split. Some people write completely from melody and then fit the words in that work with the melody. And then some people are lyric writers first and then sort of figure out melodies that work with whatever lyrics they come from. So I'm Mm -hmm. curious as to your, your process. And then if I'm off base with any sort of police uh, influence on this song or in general, something's something's always wrong. Something's always wrong. Uh, I don't know. Todd uh, wrote the music on that one. So uh, oh, you, you might have to ask him. Uh, although I, I'm not sure. Did Todd come in with the counter melody thing or was that something I. That I think, was something that. Um, I threw that, in that high part. That was uh, thrown in uh, later. For a long time, the, su- the song existed just with the main melody. Uh, the, uh, uh, and then the counter melody was put on almost at the end. You would say. Nothing's changed at all. I can't feel much hope for anything. I won't be there to catch you if you fall again. Seems we songs are very different like my songs i tend to start with i have a lot of ideas of things that might be interesting to write about and then i'll mess around on the guitar and you know a little phrase will come out and i'll use that phrase as you know kind of like the the sand in the oyster to make the pearl around uh you know i'll have just a little thing and i'll go okay which subject does this relate to that i'm interested in and I'll write around that thing. So it's a lot of um, the, the melody and, and the lyric influencing each other. And I'll push, you know, I, I'll push both of them in either direction. I almost never just start with words or a melody. You know, and if I start with a melody, it'll change totally by the time the lyrics are done. Um, with Todd's music, um, he used to, he would demo stuff a lot he would just kind of or come into rehearsal and he'd have an idea he'd have a guitar part have a melody sometimes he would just have a guitar part sometimes he would have a melody 
usually he would be singing. I mean, he would not be singing words on mm -hmm. something's always wrong. He had this something has gone wrong, and he would kind of mumble something has gone wrong, and I liked that. <laughs> and so, uh, so the lyric was kind of written around that one phrase uh, that was just kind of floating in air. But it worked so well with the music, worked so well with the phrasing um, that I kept it in, and so I, I like having that starting point. And then I, you know, then I have to figure out what the song's about based on kind of a random line. Do you have like a comfortable uh, key or chord that you tend to start with? I read once where Bill Janovitz from Buffalo Tom said he had used he had started with C so many times he had to physically stop himself. From playing a C chord to start because that was so easy for him to start writing a song in. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know, same as everybody. It's G, it's E minor, it's, it's C, <laughs> A minor. Those are, those are the starts. D, they're the easy to play ones. Uh, we just use a lot of capos to switch up the, <laughs> to get things in the right ah, key. Ah, the, the capo. Yeah, and I, I also, I mean, I messed up my hand a few years ago, so I, I find those chords very comfortable <laughs> I, i'm not trying to do anything too fancy you could always go with like an open tuning and then just go with the one finger at like uh or or drop d like tommy yeah. tommy iomi drop d is doable if you go far beyond that in uh if you go too far beyond that i think it just takes up too much of the set we're already taking up too much of the set with our capo changes uh i, I like <laughs> our guitar tech too much to to do that to him Gotcha. Track seven, Windmills. Um, I had mentioned the, the, the title of the uh, of the album, and then Windmills leads me to believe, and also based on uh, Wikipedia, that there is some sort of tie-in to Don Quixote and uh, the chasing uh, windmills. And um, I'm wondering, you had mentioned reading uh, literary works regarding uh, Fly From Heaven. Are you guys bookworms on the road are you constantly reading when you're on the road or when you're uh, at home and and that's where sort of like the the literary intake comes from and, and output in terms of the um album title and, and windmills being a reference to the to the book as well i read a lot uh in that case randy was uh actually reading don quixote while we were on the road for fear i didn't read it i heard him talk about it and i knew you know, I could fake my way in a kind of Manuel La Mancha way through the, the general plot line, but uh, I, I did not actually read the Cervantes classic. Uh, but that doesn't mean I can't cop a few uh, <laughs> references. <laughs> so I copped a few references. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, Windmills was probably somewhat influenced by the fact that Randy had just read uh, Don Quixote and was talking about it, but... I, I actually did not read it, although I, I, I read a lot of books, but haven't read that one. All right, then. I want to go back to something, actually. You guys were talking about Todd bringing songs to the band versus you. And how much would you say that the songwriting is you guys just in a room with a riff or a chord progression and sort of beating that into something, forming it into something, rather than you, know, you coming and saying, hey, I got these, I got this first and i got this chorus and sort of there how many times do you come with like a fully formed idea versus just a, a little nugget that gets fleshed out 
Um, we used to do that more back when we all lived in the same place. I don't think we ever did it. <laughs> well, a few a few times I remember, like with, um, you know, butterflies on fear. That was something that we I think we jammed on for about a day and mm-hmm. just laid it down. And then you wrote three different melodies over it or something like that. If, yeah, if Todd, I'm had, it wrong. Todd had all those parts, and then we. I mean, it was you know basically Todd's Todd's music. He had these three chordal parts and then we recorded a demo of that and then yeah i did the three songs and then we kind of we were split we were gonna pick one and we picked all of them instead yeah (laughs) (laughs) i guess and that was probably the most but as far as the like sitting there and working it out and talking over lines um you know i tend to bring in songs um they tend to be pretty done i think um and Todd, you know, would bring in once again anything from something that had everything but a final lyric, like to something that was just like the verse chords, and I would finish out from there. And so it, it really ran the gamut. Um, but we tended to do the detail stuff, we would jam on stuff a bit. Um, and Todd really doesn't like to jam so like when I'd bring in songs you know it's like he'd work on a part at home or you know he so we wouldn't even work out parts in front of each other a lot it's like couples that need to get undressed with the lights off where <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> like as a band I think we were a little bit like that so um so we would work stuff out but you know lyrics and whatever I would usually just take it home and then woodshed it and work on it and then try to bring something back and if people didn't like it I'd go do it again but um you know and and this time on the new album Dean and Todd really started writing after Toad and they they've gone to Nashville a bunch and become more of a partnership so I mean even the new album they would do these very very fleshed out demos that you know was drums bass a bunch of parts you know uh I would do some really fleshed out demos and we kind of bring those in and then work from there uh so it's just so fun to make demos these days yeah it's hard to stop it's really hard to stop (laughs) and at what point does the the vocal harmony get figured out is that something you actually save for like the studio so you can hear all of the you know move it in here move it out there or is are you guys working on that while you're working on the songs while you're like putting them together recently uh the the harmony stuff is pretty early for the most part i mean i think the specifics of it get worked out as we're recording it but you know something like california wasted which was you know dean's music was very much harmonically worked out before it came in uh get what you want and you know i have a few songs with a lot of counter melodies and i'd done all that in the demos um but, you know, it's getting the blend, figuring out what really works and making it work for the the actual voices of the band is another process. Um, I'm not sure how it worked in Dulcinea days. I think we mostly worked it out during pre-production. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of it was still dictated by, you know, I think I was singing a lot of high parts above you because um, I was used to not being able to hear myself. <laughs> Uh, in the monitors. So I had to sing high in order to hear myself because no one else was singing up there. So there's all kinds of little things like that, that, that were, 
um, out of necessity, um, uh, not so much uh, an artistic choice, but I guess it worked. And then uh, another song I want to ask you about is uh, track eight, Nancy. Um, this is a little bit different than the rest of the album. It has a bit of a, I don't want to say, it's almost like a country shuffle beat to the song. It the is song. a country shuffle beat. Yeah, and then it, uh, your vocal almost takes on a, uh, dare I say, Jim Croce-like uh, vibe. It has this like mm-hmm. 70s sort of laid back uh, singer-songwriter. W- was that an aesthetic you were going for, if you remember, um, when you guys were working on the song? Because it... Like I heard that song and I was like, "Wow, that that's Leroy Brown right there. That is like that huh. is Jim Croce to me." I probably have a little Croce in me. I, I think that was somewhere in that couple of years before I got really into Graham Parsons. A friend of mine uh, found out that I I didn't know who Graham Parsons was and you know flipped a, an illegal U-turn in his car to take me to Tower Records <laughs> and go buy Previous Angel for me. So I, I'd been listening to that a lot uh and i don't know it it's just a random weird little song i mean it's the other thing with toad songs i I feel like my writing like todd's writing his guitar tone and kind of his the gravity of the way he kind of puts things together is probably really musically the center of toad uh i mean he has a certain vibe and he'll pull out to the edges of it but there, there's this central thing that really sounds like him and I write a little more all over the map so things like windmills or Nancy and the band is able to kind of pull those back towards the center of what we do but I mean that's the bizarre thing is that that song sounds like it has it has essentially no place on the record it doesn't belong to anything else and somehow uh, everybody made it fit, which would, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know how. I can't believe you. You bend your words like Yuri Geller's spoons. You're not quite safe here. When every judgment seems to smack of doom. Are you okay? I'm just fine. As I recall, there was virtually no struggle in uh, that recording. I mean, it just, the song really told us what it wanted to be and we just sort of gave it what it wanted and it was one of the one of the simpler things to do it was so obvious um i that 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 was what it wanted to be um yeah i don't remember struggling through that one at all well it's a nice change of pace song you know there's a consistency to a lot of the the vibe of the record and then that that song sort of changes the uh the game for a bit and it it almost acts as like a, a divider between the first and the second half of the record, even though it's at track eight, but I, I that's why I appreciate it because uh, of that sort of like temporary um, separation from the rest of the record. 
the, the other track I wanted to mention um, is uh, track nine, Fall Down, which I actually, before we uh, started talking, I found on YouTube a video of you guys playing it at the 1994 Billboard uh, Music Awards getting introduced by Dennis Miller. And um, that was interesting. Like, it made me remember that there were used to be live bands playing on uh, award shows and, and you know, not doing everything to pre-recorded tracks. And uh, it was... Uh, I have I've watched videos from the era, but I didn't. I haven't watched a lot of live performances, mm. um, and it, that was interesting. I think I watched uh, somebody on the John, the original John Stewart show uh, a few years ago. Um, it was on MTV, and that was as equally as interesting. Have you guys ever gone back and listened, or, or not listened, but gone back and watched uh, any of those like Letterman you'd mentioned, or the or the Billboard? And um, I would imagine that's. Some of the fashion from the 90s is probably, to me, I was like looking at it. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember when people used to wear massively baggy sweatshirts and and they could get away with it on TV. Mm. Uh, I haven't gone back. I, I probably don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> I've gone back and watched some of the old performances and um, they're pretty good. Um, the first time we played on the Letterman show, we played with their band and um, none of us except for Glenn and Todd, Randy and I couldn't do what we normally do. Randy had to play the tambourine because their drummer played and I couldn't play the bass because uh, Will was playing. So I played acoustic and that was probably the weirdest one we ever did. We actually never did anything where we lip synced like that. Um, we, we played live on, on pretty much every show and it, um, you know, every, every, I think everybody else was doing that, too, back in the day. I mean, there wasn't any Pro Tools. There wasn't any, you know, hooking it up to a, a backing track, unless you were going full-on lip sync. Right. But, no um, auto-tune. Yeah, there was none of that. And, you know, sometimes things were a little off, and you'd cringe, but, you know, then you'd say to yourself, oh, it's it's over, you know? You know, it'll, it'll never come back, and then there it is on YouTube 20 years later. <laughs> yeah. So... Yep. Uh, the song Fall Down, I, one of the things I find really interesting is that you actually introduce part of the chorus melody in the pre-chorus. Um, it's the When Will You Fall Down line. That's an interesting and not very often heard of songwriting uh, tool. Where do you, know, where, do you remember when in the songwriting process you guys figured out that that was going to... It's sort of like a, almost like a ghost or like almost like an echo or something going on. Because it's not sung as the main vocal right before, in the pre-chorus. You remember when, when that, that came song, into the songwriting? When that song was being worked on, um, before it was even brought into the band, I remember Todd and I working on it at my parents' house, and um, that was the song. I mean, the whole, the all it was was those, uh, what is it, four chord, three chord, four chords, whatever it is, and mm. and us just singing that. When will we fall down? That's all we had. So that was really the first thing. And okay. I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, I mean, the uh, the second half of the verse, the good times never stay. Actually, that kind of is the chorus melody. Jump back. Got to get out of here. They are very similar. Mm -hmm. So things are being introduced ahead of, ahead of time a little bit. I don't think it was conscious, though. Um, uh, so when you get to the chorus, you're hearing things that you kind of have heard before, which is kind of a cool thing to do now that I think about it. But I don't even know if we realized it at the time. Sort of a happy accident in that way I'd say that one might have been a happy accident
mentioned that this was the follow-up then to um, the third album, Fear, which had All I Want as a single, and that was a big hit. Did you guys feel any pressure going in? It was you had been you know putting out an album almost every other year from when you started the first album '88, second album '90, then '91. Then it's three years between Fear and and this album. Was there any pressure um, either for, either that you put on yourselves or that Columbia sort of either overtly or suggested that maybe we might want to be focusing on singles or was that not really um, in the in the cards for for the fourth album with dulcinea we were we were really lucky uh i mean we'd we'd done the first record on our own terms uh i think we were more confident i mean you know there's in the sound of that we came in that you know the first with fear it was our first time in a big studio with a bunch of tracks and we came out of that going okay we want to make a drier record that's more like what we do live we 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 walked into it i think really knowing the sound we wanted you know we were going in with the same producer but we had a working relationship and we could kind of you know collaborate and achieve this thing together i was really intent on uh, not giving myself so many outs on lyrics and try. I mean, we were, I think, writing better. I was writing better words. We were, uh, we were in a really good state at the time. And the great thing about it too is we had Chuck Plotkin as our A and R guy, and you know he's a guy. He produ- you know, he's been a producer with. Uh, he produced Bruce Springsteen for years and years and years, and so rather than having a guy who was. Uh, a singles guy, he would walk in and say, literally, it's my job to protect you in the studio. It's my job to keep the radio people out of your hair and let you make a real record because that's what matters. You know, and, and so, you know, even when it was come time to, you know, sequence the songs, he's like, oh, this is a wild stew. There's a lot of journeys you could take people on with this. It's so heavy emotionally. <laughs> you can really... You know, you got to decide, like, what's what's the ride you want to take people on the hills and the valleys? Like, so that was our A&R experience. It was great. We just got to make a record. Yeah. We also did it way kind of out in the forest in Marin County, away from the industry, you know. Um, so, I I mean, I think that anyone, no one from the record company, um, I, I think somebody might have come once, if that. I think um, Tim came by. I think Tim came by <laughs> once. He was the local sales guy. You know, and it may have, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it, I think that definitely contributed to our being able to just, you know, do what we wanted. And by that time, on the on the Fear Tour, we were, were already starting to play Fall Down in the set um, as a new song. And, you know, there may have been, um, you know, some, you know, feeling at the record company to say, you know, make sure you cut that one or make sure you put that one on. But other than that, there, there wasn't much of anything. We didn't have, I think we still didn't have to submit demos. We didn't. No. I mean, that was what was really weird, you know, in, you know, my first record deal after Toad was like, wait a second, why am I auditioning for this job? Like, with Toad, it's like, we did it well. And, you know, once again, up until the point where we took their money, uh, they really let us do what what our job was. They trusted us to do it. And I mean, you know, not a lot of people get to say that about uh, the, the major labels, but Dulcinea was... I think it really worked great for us. They let us do our jobs. They trusted us. We trusted them to do the sales part, and they trusted us to make a, you know, we didn't want to make a crap record. We wanted to make the best record we could, so it worked out. Earlier you mentioned about re-recording 
uh, tracks for uh, to get the rights back and to be able to use those for how you wanted. Has there been um, any movement on actually getting like reissues with, uh, you know, a lot of bands now are doing uh, reissue on vinyl with like bonus, you know, some outtakes or whatnot and, and going the, the, li- the limited pressing route. Have you guys been able to uh, work towards anything like that or, or is it simply just a matter of, you know, those are the songs you're concerned about and, and you're not, and you just want to worry about re-recording the ones that only a specific number of, you know, whatever tracks that you chose for, I think it was all I want. That was the name of the compilation that you guys recorded. Yeah. All you want. Um, you oh, know, all you want. Yeah. We did that mainly like, like Glenn said earlier. So, uh, because we had gotten our publishing back and we wanted to have control of the masters as well as the publishing, it seemed like a good idea. And it has been, I mean, it's enabled us to, um, to get our, our music in some, some places that Sony probably would have said no to. We just had a uh, Walk in the Ocean was just in the, uh, the Jobs movie, um, so that was nice. But, um, you know, I don't think we would want to go back and, and do a, an entirely re-recorded version of, of any previous entire album. We did yeah. just get the, uh, the masters of Bread and Circus and Pale, the first two records. We, we, uh, we got those back. Finally, mm-hmm. and we are planning on remastering and reissuing those um, in all formats. Cool. Soon, so that'll be cool. And that's like a 2014 or 2015 project. Oh gosh, I don't know what it is. It's uh, it's an ongoing <laughs> project. We we thought we would <laughs> never see those masters, and then someone who we asked two years ago if they had them suddenly found them in a closet. So yep. we're as surprised as anyone to actually have them back in our possession. And now now we're busy with this new record. So we don't really have time to work on it properly, but as soon as we do, I imagine we will. Mm. Well, that's it's a good segue. Doing. Speaking of the new record, that's going to be out in October, and that's going to be—is that on? Uh, I believe the original record label is called Abe's yep. Record, and that's we are coming back out on, on Abe's Records. Excellent. And you guys, we're recording this at the end of August, but of course, we're putting this out uh, just as you're about to kick off new dates on tour. Um, you're heading out to the East Coast for a couple days, and then in November you're hitting East Coast and Midwest. Yeah, all over. Excellent. And people can go to towthewetchbracket.com for all that information. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, or and our if, Facebook page has it too. Facebook, Twitter, all and that stuff. all those sort of social media websites. Excellent. Well, guys, um, thank you so much for uh, for coming on the podcast and talking about toad and all the history and all that stuff and um greatly appreciated and best of luck with the new record and the uh touring this fall thank you thank you very much So that was uh, the interview with Glenn and Dean. Very generous with their time. Just uh, had come off tour and were relaxing out in California and recovering from touring and getting ready to go out on tour again uh, very soon to support the new record that comes out in October. So, Jay, we talked during the interview about Delicinea, 
their fourth album. It was one that had uh, two big singles, as we mentioned, Something's Always Wrong and Fall Down. The rest of the record is, I would call it moody. I'd call it, um, mm-hmm. has, it gets dark in some aspects. There's some spiritual and religious lyrics that uh, are kind of interesting in certain aspects of it. I'm curious as to your take. You hadn't really gone into a full Toe the Wet Sprocket album. I had probably listened to all the albums except for the... I haven't. I don't think I've heard Bread and Circus, which is uh, the first one, but I've heard all the albums at least once, and uh, this was the one I was probably most familiar with. So I'm curious as to your take on uh, this particular Toad album. Yeah, I... Um... You know, I like I said, I was mostly familiar with the singles. You know, I always lump them in with, you know, sort of in the mid to the late 90s, there was a movement of, I don't know, what's the best way to describe it? Sort of a, you know, uh, alternative but not angsty mm-hmm. sort of movement of bands that were on the lighter side. Um, so I'm thinking of like, well, the stuff that all the stuff that was on that friend soundtrack, for example. That you mentioned, uh, Del Are you Dimitri, like Counting Crows, and Counting Crows, right? Uh, now I will all say, the female, all the female artists that came out at that time, you know, their their first release was in '88, then their yeah. second one was in '90, third one '91, and then Dulcinea '94. So I yep. sort of, in my mind, was putting them towards the tail end of the the REM. Uh, you know, smithereens, sort of like the 80s sort of alternative, but with a definitely like pop sensibility and sort of uh, the oh, a quieter, uh, when I think of like the posies and frosting on the beater, it's a bit heavier record, but definitely yeah. in, in that vein. Uh, but I see where you're going with that. Yeah, and I'm not saying my recollection or my association is accurate. I'm just saying like that's kind of where I lump them in. Mm-hmm. Um, in my memory, so uh, going back and, and listening to the to the record, there are aspects of this that uh, kind of not in my my wheelhouse. Um, you know, there's a couple songs on here that I don't like. The first song, for example, kind of has a at times has almost like a Paul Simon kind of vibe to it, which I have you know tons of respect for Paul Simon, but not a huge fan in terms of not going to run out and start listening to a lot of Paul Simon records. Mm-hmm. Um, something's always wrong. I mean, even that song kind of, when you break it down, it's almost like a soft rock kind of thing. That's easy to write off and, you know, somewhat forgettable, even though the melodies are strong, the musicianship's all, all there. It just sort of doesn't have that little, either that, that dark tinge or the, the moodiness or the angstiness that usually kind of at least grabs me and probably grabs a lot of, you know, sort of commercial, uh, rock fans, but this album exposed some other parts of this band that I didn't really knew, never really uh, uh, had had known or hadn't really paid attention to in some of the other material. So in a song like "Stupid," which I was surprised, really kind of reminded me of um, Jellyfish or uh, you just mentioned them, Frosting on the Beater, the Posies. Posies. Reminded me of the jelly, uh, Jellyfish and the Posies in terms of. There's some great harmonies going on in there. And, the, mm-hmm. and it's something that when you go back and you listen to the singles that I was so familiar with, I didn't even realize there were so many harmonies going on in those songs. You know what I mean? They just kind of, it just didn't stand out to me. 
but in a song like Stupid, you can really appreciate them. Then you, when you go back and listen to the other material, it's sort of all of a sudden it, you notice things that you hadn't noticed before because of that. Um, I feel the same way about um, Crowing. It's sort of a, again, has a, to me, it, it reminds me a lot of Jellyfish, but it's just a slower, you know, one of the, it would be one of their slower songs. So that was kind of interesting to me. And it also illuminated some of the sophisticated like melodies that they're using and just a, a level of, um, of interest there that I hadn't really uh, felt with this band before. And then as the record goes on towards the end, it, it starts to get uh, particularly at the very end, really dark. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it's, it's set up with a song like inside, which I like quite a bit. Um, it's kind of got a riff to it, which is a little bit of a change for the record. Um, you know, it's got a dirty guitar. Um, I kind of like the vocal in it. It's a shift. It kind of does the shift between a falsetto and a normal uh, voice, but within the verse, which is kind of neat and a little bit different for the record. Um, and I love the, uh, you know, when the sh- when bands shift up to the dynamic and it's got a, a little bit of a louder verse, but then when they go to the chorus, it's halftime and quiet. And it's just, a, it's an interesting sort of, uh, Anytime a band can do that, I, I really I'm kind of drawn to the to ideas like that, where you kind of shift, you shake up what's what's expected. Um, but then at the end of the record, like I mentioned, it takes a pretty dark dark turn. Um, you know, begin is almost kind of has a like a, a funeral drone to it. Um, really kind of spooky, moody organ sounds, and um, I really like the last track, reincarnation song. Um, it's super, very, very restrained. Um, it almost has like a Jayhawks kind of vibe to it. And there's a bit of a, just a little bit of a twang there and some really Mm -hmm. nice melodies. And then it just builds and they just kind of just let it like live like that for the majority of the song. And then slowly it just starts to build and you kind of get some just really beautiful noise at the end. Um, which is kind of nice to hear for this band because there's so many times where on this record, like, I don't know if he uses like a fretless bass or, there's just a lot of like little things that you hear of like oh those guys are really good musicians you know what I mean like the playing so precise and so good and so together it's kind of nice on a song like this where they kind of just get a little noisy you know they just let things kind of go and let things feed back and um, that was kind of cool to hear it was an interesting way to to end the record and um, surprisingly you know I was kind of well, I was surprised that I, I enjoyed that song as much as I did. So there's definitely some things on here that made me appreciate the band a lot more than I previously had just based on the singles. Yeah, I think there's a bit more going on on the records than probably people realize with regards to if you've only heard the radio singles, you probably think they're just sort of this, you know, verse, chorus, verse, pop oriented uh, with nice, pretty harmonies. And they do some things on the record that are a little bit different. Um, not like they're writing Sonic Youth songs on the record and, and putting out singles, but they're taking some chances and doing some kind of interesting takes on what their sound is and exploring it a little bit more. And one of the songs that I, I liked and I pointed out during the interview was uh, track eight, Nancy. It's a bit different than most of the record. It has, as I would say, a Jim Croce feel to it. <laughs> um, this like 70s folk singer-songwriter vibe. And it's a yeah. real nice change of pace on the record, um, and I appreciated sort of the earnestness of the of the vocal, which is 
you know, and, and the song overall is something that was not really present in a lot of 90s yeah. albums. So A lot of the record is very kind of um, big and reverbed out, and that song is very small, like small mm-hmm. drums, small guitars. Just, yeah, like you said, very earnest. I do want to mention, because uh, right before we were recording this, uh, got some uh, Twitter activity. Uh, John Cornish chimed in, and he said, uh, nearly 20 years on and windmills still gives me chills. Such a beautiful and poignant song by far their best. So I want to say thank uh, John on Twitter for uh, chiming in with uh, some some stuff for us. And that's a... You know, that song sets up Nancy really well, just mm-hmm. because of what I said. You know, it's super atmospheric, long building intros, kind of string keyboardy sounds, really kind of hushed harmonies, um, some interesting percussion stuff going on. But it's it's very it's very expansive sounding. And then when they shift to that that Nancy sound, which is really draws you in, it really works well. Yes, definitely. Um, but one song I wanted to get your thoughts on was wood burning um mm-hmm. track two so Does that sound like late era Catherine Wheel? Like, oh, like Adam and Eve, Wishville, uh, Wishville, Wishville, oh, yeah, like that kind of mixing electric and you know clean guitars. Um, almost, it's not a drum loop, but it's very like methodically sounding, kind of mid tempo or slower drums. Um, just. Boy, I, you can almost put Rob Dickens' voice on that song and it would sound exactly like them. It almost makes me wonder if... Because I always wondered as they th- that band shifted their sound, kind of where they were going or where they were getting that influence from. Because obviously early on they were, you know, you know, for the most all intents and purposes, a shoegaze band. They sort of evolved out of that into something else. And it makes me almost wonder if they were inspired by this record a little bit or this band and and what they were trying to do on that, the later stuff. Yeah, I, I guess Wishville is probably the more um, appropriate one. And I, I think, you know, I don't know, maybe they toured together and, and this would have been like Happy Days era, um, Catherine right. Wheel, so maybe not, but it's entirely possible. Yeah, the the prettiness of like, uh, I'm thinking of like 
gasoline or, or creme mm. caramel or one of those wishville tracks definitely um you can hear some of that in wood burning because of that distorted guitar that it starts out with and it's um it's uh it's an interesting i didn't really thought about that but that's an interesting take yeah take a listen and see what you think i don't know it's like uh you know as the as catherine Rowe kind of took up almost like a singer songwriter turn towards the end there and the stuff became a little less band oriented and it just reminded me a lot of of, of that song and there's other, there's a couple other moments on it on this record where just just snippets here and there where i could kind of hear that maybe this was a band or you know that they had at least rob dickinson maybe had been listening to and kind of um was inspired by that's totally i've never heard him say that in an interview or anything but man is it there's some stuff on here that's just similar to uh to wishville and adam and eve i always figured he was listening to more uh pink floyd and and uh <laughs> yeah and that yeah. kind of stuff but yeah it's entirely possible that uh told the sprocket uh changed the direction of uh catherine <laughs> will we'll, we'll never know because yep. i had tried to book rob dickinson but he's busy designing uh porsches or, yeah. um, or Porsche-like vehicles. Boy, that sounds like an awful, awful job. Yeah, that's tough. Tough work. So that's uh, that's our interview with uh, the very generous Glenn and Dean from Toad the Wet Sprocket and our takes on their fourth album, Delicinia. And uh, if you would like to chime in, of course you can hit us up at the normal places, Facebook, Twitter, digmeoutpodcast.com. You can make a suggestion at digmeoutpodcast.com by requesting or hitting our request review page. And, of course, feel free to leave us some positive feedback over on our iTunes page. Uh, that's it. For Jay, I'm Tim. Another one in the books. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Feeling-